0: So I'm here to represent the gastroenterologists. I'm here to make gastroenterology great again. So I'm gonna talk about why we do not need surgeons to manage these patients with rectovaginal fistulas. So we're gonna talk about the medical side of the story and, and talk about do we really need surgeons to optimize outcomes for our patients? So the answer is yes and no. What we really need surgeons for, honestly, is just seton placement. We want them to go in, clean up the sepsis, and get out of the way. Um, so what the do is uh, essentially keep that fistula from closing prematurely, allowing all the purulence to be drained, and preventing uh, abscess formation. When this has been looked at. Uh, in retrospective studies, those patients that have had Ceton placement prior to receiving biologic therapy had about half the chance of getting a recurrent fistula. So the Ceton placement allows for optimization of medical therapy. Sure, we need the surgeons now, but we, those of us that do interventional IBD, we're working on ways to place Cetons ourselves so it'll be not that long before we won't be bothering them at all with these patients. Uh, to, show, to further drive home the point of why um, placing cetons is important to out- optimize outcomes, we went back and looked at claims data. It's a little bit of a complicated slide, but SBB is cetons before biologics, and SBB is no cetons before biologics. And what we found was that those that had cetons placed before starting anti-TNF therapy were far cost far less. The outcomes were far better than those that went on immediately to biologic therapy. Now, the problem with surgical intervention is it equals incontinence, and and, um, we looked at our experience by surveying our patients. Those that um, had surgical intervention, almost two-thirds of them had at least one episode of solid stool incontinence a week. Uh, Another case series looked at um, the rate of incontinence for those with perianal disease and those that had had perianal surgery had a dramatically elevated odds ratio of having fecal incontinence. So getting that surgeon involved, particularly if they're aggressive, only leads to bad outcomes, incontinence, which we don't want. So what, what, why is it important that we really optimize care? Here's a patient on the right that um, has had very severe uh, disease. You can see scars from previous uh, surgical attempts. You can obviously see the purulent drainage. You can imagine that assessment at the time of uh, an EUA would be very difficult because of all the scarring uh, and induration that's present. So imaging allows us to get a virtual roadmap uh, and then make sure all that purulence is drained. To um, show you kind of representatively what happens when we miss fistulas at the time of EUA, this is a study on the left that looks at uh, when the MRI and the EUA disagree as as to fistula anatomy and what they found is about half the time those patients had recurrent fistulas, and 100% of the time, the imaging predicted where that fistula was gonna reoccur. Now, we have a lot of different options on how to image these patients. We did a study a long time ago now looking at the various methodologies, uh, both uh, endoscopic ultrasound and MRI are very accurate in, in, in uh, assessing these patients. Those of us that do US are, the, are using this information to um, make sure we identify all the fistulas and hopefully accurately place setons uh, again, to bypass the need for uh, colorectal surgical intervention. I'll skip over this other than to show you that uh, this is uh, what a US looks like and why it's uh, really ve- uh, ideally suited to identify all the things we need to look at uh, for those patients with perianal disease, you can see both the internal sphincter, external sphincter, and intersphincteric space, all the very important parts of the anatomy for assessing uh, perianal fistulizing disease. MRI is going to be the one that's probably more frequently used because the um, EUS of the uh, perineal region is not uh, widely done. Uh, MRI also very accurate in assessing fistula anatomy. Here you can see sort of the, a representative example of um, what an MRI of the um, anal canal looks like. So now that we've had the cetons placed and we have control of the perianal sepsis, our medicines can be mo- uh, maximally effective. When uh, looked at, if we combine antibiotic therapy with anti-TNF therapy, we get far greater outcome, far better outcomes. Those patients that were on adalimumab with ciprofloxacin at week 12 had about double the chance of fistula closure as those that were on adalimumab alone. And when we use azathioprine, those studies that have looked at as secondary endpoints, we can improve the, the chance of fistula healing by about four to five times. So generally we'll use um, a combination therapy with immunomodulators, anti-TNF therapy, and an antibiotic to really optimize outcomes once we get that perianal sepsis uh, fully, fully controlled. For our anti-TNFs, the initial data uh, showed that about two-thirds of patients had uh, a greater than 50% reduction in fistula drainage, and all the anti-TNFs approved for Crohn's disease now show uh, long-term fistula maintenance of about 30 to 40 percent in those patients that are started on this therapy. So what do we consider when we have a patient with perianal Crohn's disease that's unresponsive to TNF therapy? It can be one of many things. One is an anatomical issue where the the fistula just missed because of the degree of inflammation and scarring that's there and so we weren't really optimizing our, our medicine before we started it was it surgical in other words did we make sure that setons were placed before we began anti TNF therapy are we just not waiting long enough to allow resolution of the symptom of the inflammation to occur and and or have we just underdosed the medication are, are we really optimizing the biologic therapy and the reason that we're kind of more interested now in this uh, the levels of our biologics is are, are several studies now that have looked at the fact that people on anti-TNF therapy with fistulizing disease probably need higher trough levels to optimize outcomes. In this study from uh, Maria Bru's group, we found that, they found that um, trough levels much higher than we'll generally use for luminal disease are needed to really optimize outcomes with trough levels uh, really up to above 20 showing the, the most benefit. Lastly, we we tend to use imaging to help guide therapy um, and help us determine when to pull setons, when to optimize or change medical therapy. Uh, A number of centers have looked at different ways to do this. This is a a group from Australia that looked at MRI uh, as a way to um, decide what's going on with your patient. They did an MRI at week 22. Those that have suboptimal response, they use that. On, on MRI, they use that as an indication to optimize or to increase TNF therapy, and they are able to convert some of the non-responders to responders. And we've done similar things with the US. We um, take patients, we image them first with the US, send them to a surgeon who use that information to direct, make sure all the fistulas are controlled, all the abscesses are drained. We place them on combination therapy. Uh, and then we monitor their, their treatment with EUS. When the um, drainage slows down or stops, we re-image them, and we do not pull the setons until the imaging suggests that the inflammation has improved. And you can see in this uh, retrospective case series, we had a long-term fistula cessation of drainage rate of about three-quarters, as opposed to what we're typically seeing, about 30 to 40%. We've subsequently done two prospective trials, an initial pilot study and then a, a larger prospective trial where um, those in the blue circles are the ones that were randomized to EUS controlled, uh, and you can see much better outcomes for those patients that use EUS guidance to determine um, when to pull setons, when to optimize medical therapy, um, uh, as opposed to just standard of care where we send in the surgeon and they decide when the seton gets removed. Using EUS guidance will help um, dramatically improve long-term fistula cessation of drainage rates. So in conclusion, uh, or in other words, how to avoid the colorectal surgeon, you want to use imaging to evaluate and map out the perianal process so the surgeon can get control of any purulence and fistulas present, and then we want to send the patient to a surgeon who will use imaging to help guide that seton placement, or once we learn how to do it more effectively, we can place them ourselves, and then turn that patient over to you and avoid uh, any aggressive surgical intervention because that uh, leads to incontinence. Uh, I've heard once in my training uh, a, a saying, which I think makes a lot of sense, hands off the rectum. In aggressive intervention in the rectum leads to bad outcomes. Use imaging to help monitor healing, to help improve outcomes, and use drug level monitoring to help optimize your medical therapy. So thank you, um, and I'll turn it over to my surgical colleague.
1: As opposed to hands in the rectum. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to argue I absolutely need a surgeon if you think that there's any chance of healing a rectovaginal fistula. Thank you. This is not. So Crohn's disease uh, with patients with fistulas is 10% of women with Crohn's disease. This is a really disabling and aggressive disease. These patients are miserable. So a patient with a seton in place, it does prevent perianal sepsis. It does possibly improve outcomes on medical therapy, but the patient really is still miserable. They're still draining stool out with the seton in place. And what about ongoing medical management? So we just saw that antibiotic therapy may improve the healing rates, but when you look at this, this, is the same slide that was shown, this is looking at fistula response at 12 weeks, not fistula closure. And this is looking at antibiotics in addition to an anti-TNF therapy. And when you actually look at the ECHO guidelines, this says, as you can see at the bottom here, antibiotics are effective for improving symptoms in the disease, but rarely induce complete healing. And exacerbation is the rule when these drugs are withdrawn. And when you look at a population-based study, similar finding. All fistulas recurred after antibiotic withdrawal. So I'd argue that antibiotics are largely ineffective. But what about the anti-TNFs? These are the most well-studied medical therapy in perianal fistulas, but they do come with side effects. And in addition, when you look at the trials and look at the response... The responders actually decrease over time. So I would say this is probably not a durable therapy, and the reality is that most patients are going to require a surgical intervention. Medical therapy, I would argue, is not going to be sufficient to close your fistula. How would you expect with this mechanical problem, this is an opening, it's a hole, it's a fistula tract, how is it that antibiotics, immunomodulators, and anti-TNF therapy, how are you expecting that therapy to actually just close this opening? Because you have a hole here, This is the opening that you need to close. And fibrin glue and plugs are not gonna do the trick. This is not gonna be effective for closing that hole. You need something that is definitely more durable so that the stool stops going through that area and the patient is satisfied when their fistula closes. So which operation do you choose? There's a whole list of operations here that we can choose from. We have many surgical options. Which one do we choose? This has to do um, some things that are important to consider. Are does, this panel, does the patient have significant anal canal disease? Do they have associated proctitis with their disease? And then also, is the fistula an anovaginal fistula, fistula or a rectovaginal fistula? And so more to this point, when you look at a rectovaginal fistula versus an anovaginal fistula, they're quite different. So rectovaginal fistula, you can see that the space between the posterior vaginal wall and the anterior wall, of the rectum, is very short. There's hardly any space between that, so the tract is quite short. An anovaginal fistula, on the other hand, is a lot longer because you have the whole space between the internal and external sphincter. So the way that you approach these fistulas surgically, I would argue, is different. One method that you can use here for an anovaginal fistula when the tract is longer is a lift, Can you start the video, please? So this is a video of a lift procedure. And we're just going to scroll through this video. But you can see that the probe is in the fistula tract. You can see the internal sphincter complex down by the rectum, external sphincter complex up by the uh, vaginal wall, the opening. And you identify the tract. And then can you just kind of skip through on the video? Maybe I can do it from up here. And so you can see the tract is identified and then either end of the tract on the vaginal side and on the rectal side is suture ligated and then the tract in between that is cut. So either opening from the vaginal side and from the anal side is sealed shut with suture and then cut in between. So you can see there's a tract, that's the fistula tract there with the right angle underneath that, suture ligating on the vaginal side, again on the anal side. And then after those sutures are placed, the internal opening is a cut, and then you put the probe back through to see to make sure you close your fistula. Well, what about a rectovaginal fistula? Again, the rectovaginal fistula, the tract is very, very short. So, when you think about a rectovaginal fistula, how are you going to close the internal opening? You can think of that as almost like a shade over a window. You need to pull tissue down and over the top of the internal opening or the high pressure zone. So, a few options or ways to do this is an endorectal advancement flap. The problem with this operation, there should be no associated proctitis. You can't lift rectal mucosa and submucosa up and off if there's proctitis. So if there's no proctitis and no anal canal disease, this is a very effective operation where you can flap a portion of the rectal tissue over the internal opening. It does not worsen incontinence. There's no stoma necessary, and there's no perianal wound to worry about healing. A vaginal advancement flap can be used in the setting of if there is anal canal disease or is proctitis associated with the fistula, you can actually close the tract from the vaginal side. So you end up closing both the rectal side and then you put the levator ani as an interposition tissue. So the levator is in between the rectal space and the vaginal wall and then suture ligate the vaginal wall as well. And healing rates are about 70% with this, so quite good. A martius flap, usually our urogynecologists help with this operation. You harvest the adipose tissue in the labia majora, and basically you're creating a space in the perineal body, again between the rectal side and the vaginal side here to close off this space with the flap. So a tissue flap, 60 to 70 percent healing, so pretty good healing. Similarly, a gracilis flap, however this has additional morbidity associated, as you can see this is quite extensive operation. Uh, Our plastic surgeons and urogynecologists usually help, again, with this operation, so it's a multi-team approach to harvest the gracilis and, again, create a space between the vaginal side, the rectal side, and this tissue fits within that space. Again, 60 to 70% healing. However, this operation is often done with a temporary stoma. The challenges are reality of conventional treatment. I'd argue medical therapy, complete response, maybe about 20%, maybe 30%. So I definitely think that you need the surgeon. However, with surgery, really I think the complete response is about 60% and it often has to do with patient factors like the associated proctitis or anal canal disease. And the unfortunate reality is that 20% of these patients are still undergoing proctectomy for a benign disease. We're surgeons and we like to operate, we like to do big operations, however, We have entered an era of regenerative therapy where we can use a less invasive approach. So a couple slides here on stem cell therapy for rectovaginal fistulas, where does this fit in? Well, the very first patient actually treated with stem cells for fistulizing Crohn's disease was a patient with a rectovaginal fistula. She was given an injection of cells and this patient had been refractory to conventional therapy, she'd had multiple flaps, she'd had perianal sepsis she got one dose of stem cells and within two months she was healed. So this was actually the study that spurred the multiple studies that we have since seen and already that randomized control trial, a phase three trial, the ADMIR-1, and soon we'll see ADMIR-2. But now over 300 patients have been treated with stem cell therapy without adverse effects and actually pretty good healing rates. It's a minimally invasive outpatient surgery. You curette out the tract of the fistula You ligate off the internal opening, you inject the cells, but again, you're ligating the internal opening. So it's important that you're closing the internal opening, you're closing that high pressure zone. And it's outpatient surgery. So no incision, no risk of incontinence. And the healing rates with this in the perianal disease literature has actually been up to 85%. So very good healing, I'd argue much better than medical therapy alone. In our own trial, we put on autologous mesenchymal stem cells onto a plug. The plug has been placed into the rectovaginal fistula. This has been trimmed. We've had about 80% healing with this trial so far. This is a phase one trial. So again, much better than medical therapy alone. Minimally invasive, really no risk of incontinence when you're delivering cells with a small needle versus a fistulotomy or a big flap. So very exciting. So why would you use biologics in medical therapy or perform these big flaps or end up doing a stoma when you can do a simple injection? I think this is a really exciting phase that we're entering uh, and more to come on this. So in conclusion, Cetons do prevent sepsis, but they do not heal the fistula tract. Medical management, I'd argue, is rarely durable. Close the hole. You need a surgeon. You need the surgeon to close the high pressure zone on the rectal or the anal side. You need to plug the hole. I'd argue not with glue, not with plugs alone. But with surgical therapy, I do think that's necessary. You can consider a lift for an anovaginal vaginal fistula because you've got a longer distance. So you can close that opening from the inside of the tract. For rectovaginal fistulas where the tracts are much shorter, you need to consider putting a tissue flap over that space. And then lastly, to consider stem cells as a therapeutic option, which you need the surgeon to deliver the cells. Thank you.
2: We're gonna wait for Dr. Rubin to come up and join us in this moder- uh, in this session. He's co-moderating. Um, nice job. I want to see how Dave first. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice talks to both of you. I wanted to ask, um, the two of you, before we address the questions that were brought up here, um, what about combination therapy with surgery and biologic? What do you guys think of that? I mean, should we as surgeons and gastroenterologists come together to to address the problem? We should always come together
0: <laughs> yeah so um, obviously what i my presentation was mainly tongue in cheek a little bit I, I, I do strongly believe that best outcomes are when we work closely together and and help each other out as far as treating this uh, bad complication of Crohn's.
3: I have a follow-up question to that then, Uh, Amy. What do you think is the ideal timing to uh, either stop, pause, or start biological therapy when you perform these procedures?
1: So, good question. Uh, I think actually continuing the biologic therapy through the procedure is probably a good idea because I think if you can get control of any associated proctitis or anal canal disease will actually help your healing rates. We really don't have any evidence to show that a biologic causes any increased complications or wound healing complications. So I think luminal control of the disease is probably more important than the potential surgical complication.
0: Yeah, the only time we might hold it just for a short period of time is if there's an abscess until the surgeon drains it, then we'll start it back up.
4: And on the other hand, if, you don't, if you're not on a biologic and you have complex fistulizing perianal disease, what you don't want to be in a position of then trying um, some aggressive surgical maneuver on, without the cover of biologic and then regretting that, that you're not having healing and, oh, would have been better to have the biologic on board before attempting a more complicated surgical approach.
3: I mean, I think these are really important points, and I'm not sure that our, all of our surgical colleagues um, have the same opinion or are maybe communicating with us that way. So I think this is important.
2: What do you guys think about how we're defining closure of the fistula? Clinically, by MRI, are the definitions that we're using on MRI sufficient for defining closure? Like the ADMIRE trial with uh, stem cell therapy defined You know, healing as an abscess less than two centimeters—is that—is that that fistula really healed? Or by EUS?
0: Yeah. So I think the problem is that there really is no um, well-defined imaging endpoint. The MRI stuff suggests improvement when there's less T2 signaling, but we don't really know what that actually means long-term. Um, And I think the reason why they use the endpoint of the absence of an abscess is really because they're just wanted to make sure there wasn't a complication more with the therapy, rather than that's one of the things we look for as documenting closure, if that makes sense. So it's still, unfortunately, a very crude endpoint of cessation of drainage, which we know based on imaging is not really doesn't really mean the fistula is is inactive because when we look with either EUS or MRI, it's it's still quite active a lot of the time.
1: The other challenge with MRI is if the tract is healed but it, cur- it has a scar that's left in place, sometimes that will show up still as a tract on MR. So you're not always going to have complete resolution of a tract altogether, even if it is healed.
3: Amy, can you uh, help us understand when is it okay to remove C-ton and is it, o- is it all right for the GI to do that in the office? And what tests would you recommend to confirm healing otherwise before we consider that?
1: So good question. There's not a lot of studies looking at when to remove a Seton. There has been one study that looked at infliximab with Ceton and showed that the therapy was better with the Ceton in place. Healing rates were better. And they suggested in that study to remove it either after induction or after five doses. But I think that the reality is that most patients live with a Seton in place because they may have extensive anal canal disease or proctitis that make a repair challenging or difficult. And the ceton allows for them to prevent any perianal sepsis. So, but I think leaving it in place up until a definitive operation is is worth considering.
4: Yeah, and I think Amy kind of touched on this during your talk that there's a difference. Every, we should all be aware of differences between perianal fistula disease and ano or rectovaginal fistula disease because certainly, in long-term indwelling seton, uh, or and/or attempting to remove it after the tract is either well epithelialized or the inflammation is gone, is very different situation for the perianal fistulas than from a rectovaginal fistula because the drainage is typically much more disabling and distressing to the patient, as Amy mentioned.
0: I can d- comment on, w- on what we do. Um, so it, in my institution, the, the surgeons, not not to make a joke about it, but they, um, they do just place the setons and then turn the patient back over to us, and, and we decide when to pull the setons. And what we do is we wait for the drainage to become... Not non-purulent and to slow down. It won't stop completely because obviously the seton's in place, but when it slows down then we will usually wait another few weeks and then image them. At that point, if the imaging suggests that the internal part of the fistula track is not inflamed or very minimally inflamed, then we feel comfortable removing the Ceton. If it's still inflamed, even if they're not having drainage, we not, our experience has been that that patient's going to get a recurrent fistula tract. So we'll usually try to optimize therapy again at that point and then wait a while and then reimage again. So most of the time, our patients will have Cetons in for about four to six months. Uh, before we feel it's comfortable to, to remove the ceton.
3: That's similar to what we're doing. Um, six months uh, imaging, endoscopy, something to confirm as much as possible, followed by removal in, in the right patients.
2: So one of the questions that we're getting is if the, um, if the patient's on a biologic, on an anti-TNF, and uh, the fistula appears to have closed, do we still have to send the patient over to a surgeon to close the internal opening?
0: Mm. No. Yeah. I wouldn't think so.
1: I think that if a patient is asymptomatic and they are not complaining of their fistula, don't touch it. So my opinion is if it feels as though they're closed and they're asymptomatic from that, the patient does not need to see a surgeon.
2: For those of you that use antibiotics to, um, to treat these fistulas, how long do you keep them on antibiotics?
3: Well, I can answer first from an evidence point of view, and then we can ask our... Um Panelists to discuss too. There are two randomized trials that actually looked at antibiotics during the initiation of anti TNF therapy when in the presence of perianal disease or at least fistulas. Both demonstrated that the antibiotic on board during loading phase um, had um, more success than the patients on placebo. So that was um, Cipro with adalimumab, and the other one was metronidazole with infliximab. So my practice is anyone who has a fistula that we're starting an anti-TNF, I leave them on an antibiotic during the entire loading phase, and then if they're doing well, I'll stop the antibiotic.
0: And I'm very similar, with the exception of that we'll leave it on until um, the seton is pulled, and then I, I have no evidence to support this, but theoretically it makes sense. I'll leave them on the antibiotic for a week or two afterwards, just to hopefully ensure closure without abscess formation.
4: And I might just add, in terms of using antibiotics for perianal disease, uh, one thing is you want to make sure the abscess is drained before starting antibiotics. And antibiotics never should be used, A, over the phone without examining the patient, or B, as a primary modality to try to get rid of an anal abscess. An anal abscess requires incision and drainage.
2: Amy, do you ever use a fistulotomy in the setting of of a rectovaginal or anovaginal fistula? Is that why we're seeing incontinence rates with some of the studies?
1: So rarely. So a fistulotomy only if it is very, very distal and involves very little sphincter, meaning about 10%. And especially in females who either have had children or they're planning on having children or if it's in that anterior fistula, rarely do we use a fistulotomy.
3: Amy, what's the reason for failure of those procedures? The anal vaginal fistula is one of the most difficult things for us to manage on our end. And the surgical outcomes aren't always as good as we want. What actually is happening there? Because the procedure you demonstrated looked quite definitive. So what usually is going on? Is it inflammatory or is it mechanical or technical?
1: Probably a combination of both. I think inflammatory and still having associated inflammation in that area certainly
2: contributes. So we have a few questions with respect to stem cells. Um, One of them says, why is a surgeon necessary to deliver stem cells? (laughs) Can you answer that, Amy? Uh, because Because of hospital
1: privileges. So the patient has to be taken to the operating room is usually given some sort of sedation, but it is done in the operating room under sterile conditions, and simply because it's an examiner anesthesia.
2: So one of the things we typically do when we administer the stem cells is also to curatage out the tract. Is that, mm-hmm. is that what you also yeah. do?
1: Yeah, curataging the tract and then also ligating the internal opening
2: are both important
1: to that procedure.
2: Yeah, so those are treatments that are in combination with stem cell therapy. I think it would be difficult to do those on the GI end.
0: How, how often do you have a hard time finding the internal opening?
2: Usually, you can, usually it's not
1: particularly difficult. We've got a lot of probes that are in different, different sizes Or you can use hydrogen peroxide or you can use methylene blue, all of which can help you identify the tract if it's difficult to see on
3: occasion. So what's the status of stem cells regulatory approval or availability in the U.S.?
1: So right now, uh, Admire 2 is the randomized control trial that they, um, Takeda is getting up and started with US sites, Canada, and Europe. And we're hoping to start that quarter two or quarter three of this year. Admire one was done in Europe, and Israel was the randomized control phase three. So with that trial, hopefully we'll have FDA approval.
2: Do you, Amy, do you ever use stem cells in the setting of proctitis? Hmm.
1: So to date, most of the trials, which have been largely phase one and phase two, except for that one ADMIR trial, which has been done, all have said that a contraindication in the setting of the trial has been proctitis. So the patients that have been enrolled have not had proctitis due to the inclusion-exclusion criteria. The same with the ADMIR-1, same with ADMIR-2. That being said, once I think stem cells are being more commonly used and is a therapy that we can get in our clinic and administer. I think that patients with proctitis actually may benefit from stem cell therapy because stem cell therapy does seem to work via their immunosuppressive properties and reducing the level of inflammation. So I think that in real-time practice, I do not believe that proctitis would be a contraindication.
2: Another question we have from the audience is, whether an asymptomatic fistula without an abscess needs any treatment.
0: Yeah, um, so it it sort of depends if it's asymptomatic, um, probably not, other than the sense that it has connotes um, a little poorer prognosis for their luminal disease. So even if someone has uh, perianal fistula, it's asymptomatic, I I might still consider starting them on biologic therapy, hopefully to uh, change what their future course of disease might be.
2: What's the role of long-term seton drainage in these patients? What do you guys think about indefinitely leaving setons in? I think it is safe to prevent,
1: prevent sepsis. I think that patients would like the setons removed, but it's certainly safe to have a seton in for a long period of time. The challenge with a perianal fistula, if you leave a seton in for a long time, the tract epithelializes, so that hole is pretty much always there. So if you do try and go do a repair at a later time to close the internal opening, you have to really curette out all that tissue and remove all that epithelialization to get the tract back where it can actually close back in. But once it's epithelialized, it's hard for the tract to close in.
0: There there are some patients that you you know you're just never going to be able to close their tracts. For instance, if they have anal stenosis, they're always going to have a draining fistula. So it's just a way to improve their quality of life and reduce symptoms.
4: Yeah, I think long-term draining sitons are definitely an option for select patients, especially when they're continent at risk. Uh, the caveat is that um, you can't forget about these patients, right? So, in a proportion of the patients, Ceton may break. And as Amy uh, discussed, if it's already epithelialized, that patient may be okay without the draining and because it's already fib- uh, epithelialized. And there was a question about epithelialization for medication, and the epithelialization comes from time with the C-ton. Um But the other caveat with long-term physical disease is that there's numerous case reports of uh, neoplasia developing in a chronic fistula that's been neglected, and we're talking 30, 40 years, so watch out for those patients. Uh, I think we're gonna have to end and move on to the next session. John. I'd like to thank the speakers and the audience for their great questions and discussion.